0: I'm Dr. Jordan Charlebois. I'm a psychiatrist at St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario.
1: And I'm Andrew D'Alessandro and we're from the McMaster University Neuroscience Graduate Program.
0: This is the second podcast episode in a multi-part series exploring the COVID-19 pandemic through a neuroscientific lens. For this episode, we're gonna be talking about the neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. For this podcast, we'll be using its more popular name, COVID-19, and we'll be exploring symptoms ranging from brain fog to psychosis.
1: We also had the opportunity to talk with Dr. John Connolly, co-director of the Language, Memory, and Brain Lab at the Aerial Research Center at McMaster University and the co-founder of Vox Neuro.
0: Before we get into our interview, I want to set the stage for why this is such an important topic. As we'll talk about in a lot more detail, This virus affects the brain both directly and indirectly, and this leads to a wide variety of brain symptoms. Some of these symptoms we might call moderate, like new onset depression or anxiety or brain fog, and some of them can be very severe. Some of them happen in the short term, while someone has a COVID infection, and some of them happen over the long term, lasting weeks, months, and possibly years. Now, with the pandemic, a lot of attention goes to things like the mortality rate, comparisons to other viruses, and the number of people who are admitted to different parts of the hospital. But if you're the average person and you're healthy or vulnerable, or you're the average clinician who is either seeing people acutely affected with COVID-19 or who have recovered from an infection, these brain symptoms can be extremely impactful. And given that, there is surprisingly little conversation about them. So the main goal of this podcast is to advance that conversation both among the general public and also among healthcare practitioners. Because there is so little information out there, we actually think that everyone will be able to get something out of this podcast, whether you have no science background at all or you're dealing with this disease in a professional capacity. I should also mention that several graduate students contributed to organizing the research that went into this podcast including my co-host Andrea D'Alessandro, who will be interviewing Dr. John Connolly soon, as well as Coral Rakowski, Miriam Rahat, Natri Pajankar, Nicolette Rigg, Emma Marsden, Danya Mirza, and Olivia Turner. In addition to the information we'll gather from Dr. Connolly, As a psychiatrist who treats patients with COVID throughout the hospital, my role will be to bring you the full scope of literature describing how COVID-19 can lead to neuropsychiatric symptoms. So thanks for giving us an opportunity to build some awareness around this important topic. And let's first go to the fundamental question, can COVID affect the brain? Now we have seen that other viruses, most notably coronaviruses, including SARS, MERS, and the Spanish flu, can impact the brain through two general ways. The first would be the direct route, with virus making it through the brain blood barrier and directly infecting brain cells. The other would be through leading to general inflammation through the body, and even in the absence of virus, the inflammation itself can affect how the brain functions. While our colleagues in episode one went into much more detail about the neurobiology of COVID infection, for this podcast, it's important to note that there is evidence of both mechanisms. Probably the best study to date, suggesting that the virus gets directly into the brain, was published by Jacob Matchtke and colleagues in The Lancet Neurology in October, 2020. In this study, the authors looked at the brains of individuals who had died with a COVID infection. They looked for evidence of COVID in the brains of these individuals using two techniques, immunohistochemistry, which basically uses antibodies to look for evidence of viral protein and PCR, which looks for evidence of viral nucleic acid, RNA. Using this method on 43 patients, they found direct evidence of COVID in the brain of over half of them, 53 of those patients. Interestingly, it looked like the virus was segregated to particular parts of the brain, including the brainstem, cerebellum, and also the olfactory bulb, which makes sense given some of the symptoms we see with COVID being in the olfactory or smelling system. They also saw that the virus appeared to be following cranial nerves that were connected to the brain stem, including the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve. In addition to evidence of the virus, in these same areas, they also saw the effects of inflammation and immune responses, uh, potentially leading to damage to surrounding brain tissue. So what should we take from this? First, it it suggests that, at least in some individuals, COVID-19 is able to get into these incredibly important brain areas, and we might expect it to be associated with at least some dysfunction in those areas. Two points of interest that I found with this study. First, was that the extent of damage was not related to disease severity or viral load. This means that we aren't just seeing these effects in people with severe disease or lots of virus in their body. It looks like what's more important is the body's response to even low levels of virus or even moderate disease. The other interesting point was the association of the virus with the vagal nerve. The vagal nerve is a major nerve network in the body that connects the brain to the stomach and the intestines as well as many other parts. And we know from other studies that uh, COVID-19 is able to enter cells called enterocytes within the stomach and intestines. We don't know, however, whether this is just a coincidence or whether this has any sort of clinical significance. Separate studies have looked at the indirect effect of COVID in the brain. A recent one from February 2021 in a letter published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Lee and colleagues looked at the brains of 18 patients who had died after recent COVID-19 infection. The average age of patients in this study was only 50 years old, and they had detailed medical histories for 16 of the 18 patients. In terms of those medical histories, one had delirium, Five had mild respiratory symptoms, four had significant respiratory symptoms, and two had blood clots in their lungs. What was found was that in the majority of patients, there was evidence of injury in the small blood vessels of the brain, the microvasculature. And in many of those areas, they overlap with the previous study, including the olfactory bulb, the vagal nerve, and parts of the brainstem, particularly ones associated with breathing. And also an area of the brain that's associated with movement disorders, such as Parkinson's disease, called the substantia nigra. This was interesting because, as we'll see later in the podcast, we'll talk about some of the presentations of physical symptoms with COVID infection, and some of them do overlap with Parkinson's disease. Again, interestingly, in this study, the authors were not able to detect signs of COVID RNA in the brain, But they did note that in the context of each patient's infection timeline it's possible that the virus had been cleared by the time of death so again what can we take from these types of studies in the context of other things that we know about coronaviruses well for now we're only a year into the pandemic and essentially all of the information is focused on how the damage described by these studies can lead to short-term symptoms which we'll talk about in a minute but it also raises concerns about long-term disease risk In general, we know that this type of inflammation, this type of damage to blood vessels and this type of stress to the brain can be associated with severe neurocognitive disorders such as Alzheimer's dementia and Parkinson's disease. Now that is theoretical, but unfortunately we have actually seen this play out previously. Following the resolution of the Spanish flu, we saw that the rate of diagnosis of Parkinson's disease tripled for the next three years. Now, as scientists and clinicians, we're gonna be watching this very carefully, but for now, we can focus on understanding the acute effects of the virus. So let's go back to Andrea, who is with Dr. Connolly, so that we can discuss some of those.
1: Dr. Connolly, thank you so much for joining me here today.
0: Thank you for the invitation, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So the topic of our podcast is COVID-19 and the brain, and we're honored to pick your brain today about that topic. So without further ado, Dr. Connolly, would you go ahead and just tell us a bit about your background on your work and your company, Neuro?
2: Sure. Now, my background extends back to my master's degree, which was in pharmacology, behavioral pharmacology. Mm. Then I moved from, that was in Canada. I had moved up from the States. I then moved to uh, England, and I did what was then referred to as a behavioral physiology, psychophysiology, uh, neuroscience was a term that had not yet been invented. And in jumping then several decades, in the early 90s, we began using uh, both fMRI, we'd been using CTs, but they weren't much use. But uh, for what we were looking at, I should say, Uh, but we were doing some MRI work, even in England, I'd done electroencephalography, EEG Mm -hmm. work, especially evoke potentials. And I knew their value where you get entire departments of clinical neurophysiology that really can assess people. And given that it's it's ability to look at timing of brain function, cognitive function, but also physiological function like motor responses. Mm -hmm. It just was of more use to me generally than functional MRI. So it was in the early 90s that we first tested a patient that had been diagnosed in the usual fashion, which is what was was called, is called consensus diagnosis. It means that several health professionals, usually medical people will look at a patient and declare that this looks to me like what what I was studying was vegetative state, mm-hmm. also now called unresponsive responsive wakefulness syndrome. Uh, so at any rate, um, I always wondered how accurate it was because you would get people emerge from that despite the diagnosis. So we tested some of them. And uh, the first person we tested was diagnosed by people who were fully qualified in neurology and physiatry. And they said classic vegetative state. And we tested this person and he showed a range of what are called event related potentials. And these are particular type of brain responses that are linked to things as basic as paying attention, the ability to concentrate, uh, right up to things like semantic comprehension. So you can really look at a range of these things. And we demonstrated that that young fellow who had been assaulted and uh, stabbed in the head and uh, that he wasn't in a vegetative state because his cognition was fine. It was his the ability of his brain to control his body and demonstrate mm. that he was there. He couldn't do anything, not even blink. At least one eye couldn't blink, so they temporarily sutured it shut. Point is, he received rehab, which was not the plan. He was going to be triaged and then go to palliative care until he passed away. So he received treatment and he responded to it very, very well. He never spoke again because of where the injury was. It was in Broca's area, left or the lateral prefrontal cortex. Uh, But otherwise, he walked out of the hospital. Uh, He went back to a life that he had. So that really encouraged us. So fast forward, we've we kept doing that work. I moved a few times and, and moved to Hamilton and we've tested uh, some other patients. So one of whom is mentioned on our webpage uh, and we're still following him 10 years after we tested him because he was diagnosed by Jane Gillette. Uh, she started life as a speech language pathologist then got a neurology degree. And she diagnosed this person not using consensus diagnosis. She used a structured behavioral interview uh, or attempted interview, but a structured test. And uh, she said, classic vegetative state. Except she knew, she really helped recruit me here. Uh, She knew what I was on about. She said, now it's your turn. And again, we tested him and he showed everything. Some of them were very, very delayed responses, which is critical to know, which again is sort of the value of these events related potentials Mm -hmm. because you get millisecond timing. But he showed everything. It was really quite remarkable. It was, he was thoroughly intact. His memory was good, everything. He just couldn't show the responses. We interviewed him. We have tape recordings of interviews with him where he was speaking and that sort of thing. He was, he's learning to walk again. It's a very slow recovery. This idea of people recovering um, within a year or two, and that's as far as they'll go, is mm-hmm. absolutely incorrect in some cases. So it's worth pursuing it. So that's the background. And the issue is that we've, when I first, very early, I think it was in January or February, there were a couple of very low key papers, <clears throat> not big impact journals. Uh, and one was Neurology uh, Today. And that was, some of it was from China, and some of it was from Italy. And one article I remember vividly was that neurology, Italian neurologists warned their American colleagues, this coronavirus has strong, very strong neurological consequences. And I said, we might want to keep an eye on this, because they kept calling it brain fog, they still do, mm-hmm. which is not a, the best descriptor. I mean, it, it doesn't capture anything. But, uh, but at any rate, I, I wrote a couple of white papers for the company. But we then just waited. And what then became apparent was it wasn't just an acute part of the illness, that there were people not getting over this. And uh, so they would be, let's say, over the initial acute virus, but but they still had the symptoms. That's when we started testing. it a slow process, but we have tested The number keeps changing. But if it's a dozen, it's only just. But what I can say is that uh, these measures, which are objective, that's that's the big thing we talk about. Because even though one of my oldest friends is a, a very good neuropsychologist, he'd be the first to say he can only go so far with it because the person cannot communicate. Or if it's just a very subjective opinion, He was actually the patient that was stabbed in the head that I first mentioned was his patient. And he said, I can't do anything with this person. You try it. And I was just in the early stages of trying to do this. And uh, so we did, and it worked out very, very positively. And also they don't vary by subjective opinion. It's like, Mm -hmm. how quickly are you processing something? How large is your brain response to it? They're just objective measures. If any one of the people on this call were to slip on some ice, uh, and hit their elbow. And they come to see a physician. And the physician she says, How much pain are you in? And you might say, five mm. out of ten. Somebody else might say nine out of ten, even if we could make it metric. This doesn't do that. This will tell you, you know, what the consequences are to this injury.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for that background of, of your experience. Um, so we did move a little bit to COVID-19 and the brain there, and you did bring up brain fog. You mentioned it's not a good term to kind of capture what really is occurring. So in your experience or from your own, you know, navigating the literature, what do you think brain fog is trying to get at? What is that term trying to display that is going on?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And the first time I ever heard it was actually on CBC. And it was uh, talking to a young couple and the young fellow, she hadn't had COVID as I understand, as I recall. Maybe she did, but he did. And they asked, what, what was it like? And he and he said, did you ever have a concussion? But that really got me interested because it, it really, that's a clear brain injury. But he said, he said, I was just in a fog and that also captures it. Everything's is slowed by, in the individual. Uh, so what we're finding, though, is that like concussion, we don't have a profile yet. But there really isn't a profile even for concussion. The brain is is uh, I like to say it's it's unnecessarily complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is very complicated uh, mechanism, but nonetheless, uh, it brain fog will encapsulate a whole range of things, including just basic issues like balance. Uh, There's one fellow from CNN who most of his symptoms were what, at least in psychiatry, is often referred to as soft neurological signs. And that means a certain awkwardness, clumsiness. And he said that he found he was like dining with someone and he knocked over a glass of wine. And, And he said, and one couldn't believe him, he's very exact. He said, I don't do that sort of thing. Mm. And another one, he was walking home, he said, from getting his groceries. He lives in New York, I think. And he fell on the sidewalk. Uh, And he looked back, as people always do, at the sidewalk. He said it was perfectly flat. Mm. There was no problem. So you get that even in, and he was suffering from post-COVID. So you get that. And then you get a range of not being able to attend to things, certainly concentration suffers. right? And then by virtue of that, you'll get memory problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll remember, it's not long-term memory, you'll remember your family, etc. But you will have working memory problems, which is why very early on in both Chinese studies and Italian studies, they talked about dis-executive syndrome, that they found that the executive function in cognition, which is a, a catch-all a little bit, it it encapsulates a number of different functions, but it was something that was suffering greatly. People just couldn't get organized. There was no flexible thinking. It really captures all of that.
1: Jordan, do you know of any other studies that have looked at brain fog and associated symptoms?
0: Yeah, thanks, Andrea. There are several studies that have tried to look at brain fog associated with COVID. One of the limitations here is that we don't have a formal definition of brain fog. The White House recently proposed PASC, P-A-S-C, post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, but there are other issues to consider that make this difficult. For one, we already know that severe illness in general can lead to symptoms of cognitive impairment. In the most severe cases, we have a thing that we label post-ICU syndrome for people who were in an intensive care unit, but we see that this brain fog actually happens across the board, regardless of how sick someone is. In fact, While men are more likely to go to the ICU with COVID, women and children are more likely to suffer brain fog. So it looks like at least part of this is more related to the virus and less related to going to the ICU. So again, how do we sort this out? I'll first mention this interesting study by Hampshire et al, preprint published in MedRx4, where they looked at 84,000 participants who signed up for an online intelligence test. They were told that the purpose of the test was to identify their cognitive strengths. After the assessment, they took a questionnaire regarding suspected or confirmed COVID-19 status, as well as other elements of their education, age, background, etc. What the authors found when they looked at the scores was that individuals who had recovered from confirmed COVID-19 infection had significantly lower scores. This showed evidence of cognitive deficits when compared against their peers. Interestingly, the difference in scores was not accounted for by differences in age, education, or other demographic or socioeconomic factors. Now, the limitation here is that this was a survey that anyone could sign up for, and it was not uh, formal neuropsychiatric testing. But to some extent, this might better speak to how people are experiencing their symptoms outside of the laboratory setting. And it looks like, there's a signal for cognitive impairment in people who are trying to score as best as they can. Changing gears to a very large peer-reviewed study, the NIH published a review of long COVID in March, 2021, where they looked at over 300 published papers from across the world, trying to sort out what sort of trends emerge when we look at long COVID symptoms. Now, most studies show that around 20 to 30% of people experience some form of symptom lasting at least two months following the so-called resolution of their infection. For individuals who required oxygen therapy at any point, that number goes from 20 to 30% to 90%. What sorts of noteworthy trends come out of these studies? Well, as Dr. Connolly discussed, the most common symptoms are fatigue and persistent levels of cognitive impairment, which can mean confusion, clumsiness, memory problems, and difficulty with attention. In this paper, of the people who experienced these long-term symptoms lasting several months, about a third of them experienced new onset of anxiety or depressive symptoms. And we'll talk about some papers later on which show similar numbers. The other thing that stood out to me was something that was mentioned in the NIH article, but more thoroughly described by Salman Saron and colleagues in the Journal of Infection 2020 more than half of people who have these long-term symptoms actually go through a symptom-free period following infection and again these are across all age groups and all severities not just people who ended up in the hospital so what's the take home from these studies if you recover from covid there's a good chance something like 10 to 30 percent according to the nih study that you're going to develop some sort of ongoing neuropsychiatric symptom most likely fatigue, but potentially also brain fog, depression, and anxiety. And This is regardless of whether you're somebody who has struggled with these things in the past. The other thing is that if you're two weeks out of your infection and you're feeling great, unfortunately, more than half of the people who get these long-term symptoms don't develop symptoms until several weeks out. And The vast majority of people who have these symptoms describe them as significantly impacting their daily functioning, their family life, and their ability to work. Now, I know Dr. Connolly can actually speak to measuring the effects of some of these symptoms at the level of the brain. So let's get back to Andrea for more of the interview.
1: Do you have any speculations about how these symptoms are related to the virus itself?
2: One of the things that keeps getting mentioned is inflammation. So some of the first signs in one of the very first papers out of China, uh, they, they were talking about encephalitis, so it's just inflammation and, right. and, uh, and that, that has continued to be play a role. Also, just some coronaviruses, there's, there's very good work. I associate it, I think, rightly with Quebec, it's uh, people at Laval University collaborating with people in the United Kingdom, uh, where they talk about some coronaviruses, their first entry into the body uh, is neurological. So they use, uh, if I can use it that way, uh, they they have a roadmap where they come in uh, on the uh, uh, two cranial nerves in particular, uh, one in five, which explains the headaches that Mm. these people often suffer in the acute phase, and also the loss of smell and taste. And some of those same symptoms, uh, headache a little, but uh, even loss of smell and taste, they seem to be part of the post-COVID syndrome as well. Hmm. For example, some of that work suggested that the respiratory side to some of these coronaviruses was actually a result that came secondarily to entry into the brain, that the that the, the infection in the brain went straight to areas like the medulla, which controls respiration. But this one, I, I don't know, honestly, if, if anybody's really sure, but some things I've seen suggest this mm-hmm. doesn't come in that way, this particular one, mm-hmm. this uh, COVID-19.
1: Now, in your research um, with COVID patients, are there any specific um, cases, like a patient case that has stood out to you?
2: Honestly, no. The reason I say that is because I think the whole thing has been fairly, uh, I, w- I don't want to say surprising, but I was, I was taken aback at how profound the effects are so that we see substantial latency delays. Again, that's a real conduction issue. It is is not conduction in a motor sense of you stimulate, like EMG or ulnar nerve stimulation, and then you look at somatosensory responses, but just the time it takes to process information to then move it to the next stage it's, it's almost like you know, tubes versus transistors. Uh, it is just everything is slowed down. So things that should happen at 100 milliseconds are happening at 250. And again, you cannot fake that. You cannot, it's I think one of the big advantages to this sort of technique uh, that we use. But nonetheless, I think none of them stand out. One of the things that I have been asked but it's, it's simply way too early is, is there a, are there different patterns that are emerging? But, but there are no patterns yet, as far as we know, because right. we, we just haven't tested enough people.
1: Dr. Connolly mentioned inflammation, which we know can be associated with multiple neuropsychiatric symptoms. Jordan, is there anything else you can tell us about the neuropsychiatric effects of inflammation in the brain?
0: Yes, as Dr. Connolly mentioned, inflammation can disrupt how the brain is functioning in general. He talked about measuring this with EEG, or electroencephalogram, which is basically putting little electrodes on the scalp and measuring the underlying electrical activity of brain cells. He noted that in these patients, you can see a substantial slowing down of the brain's responses, and that this slowing down affects how all the different networks in the brain function. As he noted, this can be associated with things like cognitive impairment, but it can also be associated with more severe conditions, such as delirium and psychosis. Delirium is a brain-related problem where someone experiences profound deficits in their orientation, attention, and awareness. This means that a person might not know where they are, might not know when they are, from the time of the day to the year or the decade, and because of all their impairments, they actually are not able to figure these things out. When someone is delirious, they also experience some very distressing perceptual abnormalities like seeing things, hearing things, and in general, being unable to think the way they normally do. This can obviously be distressing to the individual, but it can also lead to issues in the hospital because delirium can make someone agitated to the point of becoming violent and needing to be sedated. Or, hypoactive delirium can make people withdraw to the point of refusing to eat or drink or take medications or communicate with their care team, and all of these things are obviously extremely important for survival. So how common is this delirium with COVID-19? The best study to date that looked at this number was Delirium in Older Patients with COVID-19 Presenting to the Emergency Department. This was published in November 2020 in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Maura Kennedy. This study used a checklist-based approach to characterize delirium symptoms in 817 patients from seven sites across the US. They found that of the people who presented to the ER with COVID, 28% experienced delirium as one of the main symptoms of their presentation. Now, normal rates of delirium for other similar conditions range between seven to 20%. So 28% is a very significant increase. Um, Obviously, these are people who presented to the ER in the first place, and most people who get COVID don't end up coming to the hospital. Of the people that do, we can see that a significant number of them present with delirium. There was another study published in the Archives of Gerontology and Geriatrics in March 2021 called Delirium and Mortality in Coronavirus Disease 2019, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Raymond Granada and colleagues. These authors uh, took a bunch of peer reviewed studies um, that looked for COVID status, delirium, and mortality, meaning dying, um, and they ended up looking at nine studies which covered almost 4,000 patients. The authors found a 27% delirium rate, which was similar to the 28% that I talked about in the last study. And interestingly, they noted that delirium did not appear to be significantly related to other medical comorbidities like dementia. To the clinicians listening, one interesting note from the study was they found that for every one milligram per liter increase in CRP, that's C-reactive protein, which is a general marker for inflammation in the body, for every one milligram per liter increase, there was a 1% increase in the risk of delirium. Again, this is kind of a secondary outcome of the study, so we take it with a grain of salt but it does suggest that there is some sort of connection between the general degree of inflammation and the likelihood of developing a delirium. So we get this increased rate of delirium and it's obviously distressing, but how serious can it be? This same study that was looking at delirium and mortality risk found that delirium itself increased the odds of dying by an odds ratio of 2.39, meaning it more than doubled the odds of dying for the statistics autos, the confidence interval here was 1.6 to 3.5 um, but we might imagine that this relationship could be driven by a third variable like disease severity you know people with more severe disease are more likely to get delirium and separately maybe they're more likely to die so the authors did a subgroup analysis and delirium still ended up being an independent risk factor for dying with a similar odds ratio of 2.12. So again, roughly doubling the odds. So what do we take from this? I would say these studies strongly suggest COVID-19 greatly increases the rate of delirium. And this was in keeping with many other studies and that this delirium in and of itself is likely a risk factor for mortality. So we should all be aware of that. Now, what about the delirium itself? Delirium can happen in many different medical conditions, is there anything unique about the delirium that presents with COVID-19? There were two studies that referenced this, both completed by groups at Mass General and Harvard, and I include them here because they're shockingly close to trends that we feel like we've been seeing on the inpatient units. The first study is Delirium in COVID-19, A Case Series and Exploration of Potential Mechanisms for Central Nervous System Involvement by Dr. Beach and colleagues in General Hospital Psychiatry, Volume 65. The second study is NeuroCOVID: Pharmacological Recommendations for Delirium Associated with COVID-19, and that study was in Psychosomatics November 2020 by Dr. Bowler and colleagues, and I'll throw back to this one later. So Um, probably remember this one. In the two studies, the authors talk again about the increased prevalence of delirium and they also review a case series that they've been following where they break down the individual symptoms of delirium. In terms of physical presentation, these authors noted a much higher than expected frequency of a symptom called clonus, which is almost like a tremor or a spasming sort of symptom that you can elicit on a physical exam. Um, this was observed in all but one patient. They also described patients suffering from a sort of rigidity throughout their bodies, almost like a Parkinson's disease, and this was not associated with any sort of medical interventions that might be thought to cause this. In one series, they noted that at one point, all patients, every patient stopped eating and taking anything by mouth They then went on to speak less and less to the point of becoming fully mute. And while this was going on, several of the patients also displayed a complete loss of spontaneous movement. This was very striking because we have seen patients like this in our own hospitals. And earlier in the podcast, we talked separately about finding evidence of COVID and COVID-related inflammation in areas of the brain that related to things like initiating activity. That can be movement, speaking, even thinking in some cases. And this is the same region that's associated with Parkinson's disease. Separately, we talked about how with prior coronavirus pandemics, we also saw an increase in the rate of diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in the ensuing few years. Now, those authors are still following their patients, but I can say uh, anecdotally from most of the people that I've seen in this very unusual state, Um, most of them gradually got better over a period of weeks to months. And that brings up a good point. We've mentioned delirium in the context of mortality, but what about the people who go on to recover? We found one study published in Nature Neuropsychopharmacology by Dr. Juan and colleagues, February 2021, where neuropsychologists followed 57 patients who were recovering from COVID-19 on a rehabilitation unit. All of the patients were at least six weeks out from their initial COVID presentation, and 90% of them had been diagnosed with a delirium at some point. When the neuropsychologist did um, psychological testing on the patients, almost 90% showed significant deficits when compared to their peers. These deficits were most pronounced in working memory, followed by set shifting, followed by attention, and then processing speed. And this actually seems to be in keeping with what we talked about with long COVID previously. Um, Again, as we've seen with previous studies, these deficits were also not predicted by the disease severity or the length of whatever medical intervention they had. So whether you were intubated for a long time in the ICU, or you just required some oxygen on the floor, if you developed delirium, you were at the same risk of having these cognitive deficits. So in summary here, it looks like COVID-19 can greatly increase someone's chances of developing delirium, in some cases as high as 20 to 30%, and the development of delirium might be independently associated with an increased odds of dying. And the delirium itself, in some cases at least, can be quite striking, presenting with features that resemble Parkinson's disease along with the loss of eating, speaking, and even moving. Now for the clinicians listening out there, it's worth noting that while this presentation might resemble a movement order that we might be more familiar with called catatonia, it actually doesn't seem to behave like catatonia or respond to the normal treatments for catatonia. For treatment recommendations for delirium, I would recommend checking out that article in Psychosomatics, where the authors go over uh, a set of treatment guidelines which starts with melatonin as the first-line treatment, followed by alpha antagonists, including dexmedetomidine and clonidine, followed by, in the case of hyperactive delirium, antipsychotics. But getting back to the general issue with COVID-19 and inflammation in the brain, another thing that I look out for is psychosis. Now, psychosis is another brain condition wherein somebody can maintain their orientation, their attention, and their awareness, but they experience symptoms like auditory or visual hallucinations, so seeing things and hearing things. They experience delusions, which are fixed beliefs that we wouldn't normally have, so things like believing people are watching you or wanting to kill you, and also thought disorder, which is an inability to think about things in our usual organized fashion. Now there were fewer studies looking at psychosis. Most of them were case series of one to two dozen patients. Um, The concerning point that I took away from these case series was the number of people getting diagnosed with psychosis who had no prior history of any psychiatric symptoms. So there was one series published by Perma and colleagues um, called Psychotic Symptoms in COVID-19 Patients, a retrospective descriptive study where they followed 10 individuals with no history of psychosis, no history of delirium, who all developed psychosis in the context of COVID-19 infection. And again, interestingly, there was this delay before the onset of symptoms. So all but one of the patients didn't have any sort of psychotic symptoms until at least two weeks after their initial presentation. Um, There were some potential confounds in the study, meaning um, one of the things we look out for are other medications that can be associated with uh, psychosis. 70 percent of these patients were prescribed corticosteroids and we do know that those can have psychosis as a side effect but we wouldn't expect it to be as prevalent as we're seeing uh, in these case series. Now the biggest study looking at neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with COVID infection was published on the day of the recording of this podcast. The study is called Six Month Neurological and Psychiatric Outcomes in 236,379 Survivors of COVID-19, a retrospective cohort study using electronic health records. It was published by Maxime Taquet and colleagues in The Lancet in April 2021. This was a giant study that looked at essentially a quarter of a million people who had gone through a network of American healthcare providers over several months during the pandemic. The authors looked at this group of individuals who survived their coronavirus infection and looked at whether they were developing any neuropsychiatric symptoms within six months of recovery. Now, because we don't have detailed neuropsychiatric records of a quarter of a million people who are at home and healthy during this period, we don't have an equivalent healthy group to compare to. Because of this, the authors compared the COVID survivors to individuals who came through the same healthcare system with other diagnoses, including flu, other respiratory tract infections, other inflammatory disorders, and trauma injuries like fractures. These groups were separated in the comparison. So, you know, COVID versus the flu, COVID versus other respiratory infections, COVID versus other inflammatory disorders, et cetera. This study is not only important because of the sheer size of it, but also because I think it informs a lot of the public discussion that happens around the risk of COVID. Whereas a lot of the discussion I see revolves around concerns about older individuals or frail individuals, this study looked at everyone inpatient and outpatient, and the average age was only 46 years old. The average age of uh, patients in this study who ended up needing to go to the hospital was only 57 years old. So that's something that I think steers us away from this discussion about frail or older individuals and more towards what can the general public expect in the context of COVID infections. So let's look at the results of the study. Across all 236,000 patients who recovered from COVID, the incidence of neuropsychiatric symptoms at six months was 34%. That's around 80,000 people. Of those roughly 80,000 people, about half of them had no history at all of any cognitive, neurological, or psychiatric complaints. Now that 34% number is for everybody across the entire study. For patients who didn't even need to go to the hospital, which was most of them, the number was 31%. So roughly one in three people who had sufficiently mild COVID infections, to the extent that they didn't need to go to the hospital, were likely to develop some sort of diagnosable psychiatric symptom within the next six months. For people that had more significant infections, the rates increase. So for patients who had to go to the hospital, the rate goes up to 38% uh patients who had to go to the intensive care unit the rate was 46 percent so roughly half of people who go to the icu and for patients who experience delirium the rate is 62 percent and again for about half of the people in each category none of them had any prior conditions what happens if we try to break this down into specific psychiatric conditions if we lump together all of the psychiatric conditions, including diagnosable mood disorders like depression and bipolar, anxiety disorders, and also psychosis, we see that the COVID infection rate increases by about 23% in people who didn't need to go to the hospital, 34% for people that went to the hospital, and 73% for people who suffered a delirium. Now, let's break this down into specific disorders. Mood disorders and anxiety disorders are already very prevalent so even a small percentage increase in the rate of these disorders in the general population translates into a huge number they were similar enough in this study that i can round them together um, but the increase in mood disorders and also separately in anxiety disorders for people who didn't need to go to the hospital was about 20 percent that number increases to about 50 percent in the people that ended up getting significant symptoms like delirium So the take home there is for the average person who gets COVID, uh, who doesn't need to go to the hospital, there's still a one in five chance of developing some sort of a diagnosable anxiety or mood symptom within the next six months, which I think is shockingly high. Psychosis on the other hand, is a lot less common. And so even a small increase translates into a much bigger percentage increase for people who didn't have to go to the hospital the rate of psychosis went up by 122 percent for people who ended up uh, going to the hospital with delirium the rate of psychosis increased by 284 percent so these numbers are huge and for anybody who is still comparing this to the flu they actually plot the differences between the flu and covid with respect to these numbers and the differences are very substantial uh, which i think brings us to another good summary point As Dr. Connolly described, and as we've just covered here, inflammation can lead to brain dysfunction, which can be associated with a number of neuropsychiatric symptoms, the most severe of which are delirium and psychosis. The rates of neuropsychiatric symptoms with COVID-19 are very high, especially when compared to other medical conditions, and they're high regardless of whether somebody needs to go to the hospital or not. Though if you do need to go to the hospital, the rates increase significantly and even more so for individuals who develop delirium. We mentioned some resources for clinicians regarding the treatment of delirium. And we also talked about the risk of developing other neuropsychiatric disorders ranging from anxiety to mood disorders to psychosis. So now that I think we've established a pretty comprehensive understanding of what can happen, let's go back to Andrea and Dr. Connolly, who are talking about what we can do in light of these concerns.
1: I guess one question that I'm sure lots of people are wondering as we hear about these neurocognitive yeah. effects, what kinds of um, tips would you have for people to protect themselves? Or or if they do find themselves experiencing these symptoms post-COVID, what can they be doing um, to try to prevent or to try to help their their cognitive functioning?
2: Let's start with prevention because I mm-hmm. think it's potentially easier. And that really is... Uh, especially with some of these variants. And if your audience is your peer group, let's call it, be very careful because some of the variants are affecting, for example, this work coming out of Europe that uh, children, Mm. are schools safe? There are some European countries that are saying not with some of these variants. And that applies to people under the age of 30, for example. Uh, so be very careful of these. Uh, also, they're not only uh, m- more easily passed; they're, they're also, by all accounts, uh, more virulent. So it's it's uh, you get quite ill. Dr. Fauci in the U.S. has said uh, more recently: double mask. The second you go outside your bubble, let's assume that's mm. your apartment or your house, put a mask on because. You know, just walking around where I live, I'll go for a walk. I'll go for a walk in a little while, because it's quite sunny. Um, but uh, but I wear a mask, because I, I don't know who I'll meet. It might be somebody I know, and we both know to talk at a distance, so that uh, I forget where they were. It was someplace like MIT, Caltech, uh, where they had they simulated mechanically. So it, like I say, it was MIT or Caltech. Um, a coughing machine and they could produce different vapors and, and droplets and they found that unmasked uh, the average cough traveled with the droplets traveled 12 feet. Then with a, a material mask they traveled about six feet and then with proper masking it really did it just went like uh, two or three feet, but it floats in the trajectory of it uh, dropping off was, was very much slower than, you know, full-fledged drops. It is the mist is what's, uh, right. so I would just say, just be super careful. Wear a mask mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, don't congregate unless you're outside distanced in a high wind. And, um, and I even heard someone say, embarrassed on the radio, they said it was, Different people like this talking. They, they, they were not just uh, call ins. And um, someone says, I admit that I walk by people and I admit I hold my breath. And the expert they were speaking to said, Oh, sure, so do I. But just be mm-hmm. very careful. And in terms of what to do with the symptoms, if you find them, yeah. that's very difficult. I, there was an article, I forget where I saw this, but it was. Uh, it, it's less relevant where I saw it. it might, somebody sent it to me uh, and it was maybe CNN because I know that he, he's religious about CNN, but it was actually about a Quebec group uh, headed by a, a woman named uh, Dr. Falcone or Falcone, if you anglicize it, but, um, but nonetheless, uh, she's in Montreal uh, and she has, she has set up, she worked nine years with Dr. Fauci in the US and she has uh, she's set up shop in Montreal in a research facility, and she she is looking to treat these people. So it didn't go into detail about what the treatment is, but I do know, for example, a neuropsychologist colleague of mine. I knew him in England, and then he moved to Canada, then he moved to the U.S., and now has failed to retire. He intended to but <laughs> failed miserably, but he's in Ghana, and. Uh, he is just, he is setting up facilities to treat long COVID. It is less a problem so far, at least in Ghana, but it's a problem. But he said, everybody's wearing masks. And, um, but he, he did say that he's tr- going to treat this initially until he knows better, like he would as a neuropsychologist. And he said the ones he's met look very similar to the brain injuries and, and you know, the acquired brain injuries or so stroke or whatever that he sees regularly. Mm-hmm. So uh, if somebody tells you, oh, just go home, it'll sort itself out. Don't worry. Do not believe them. It happened in the United Kingdom. I will recommend an article by Elaine Maxwell. Uh, it's uh, it's called Living with COVID. It sounds very conversational. It's beautifully written, but a lot of data. And uh, and it's, it is talking about these sorts of things. And for example, she said, I think the article was from last October, based on the UK, she said conservatively, and she meant just like Hopkins, it was only people formally diagnosed with uh, COVID. Uh, she said at least 50% will need, and she emphasized the word formal, rehabilitation. This is a rehabilitation crisis mm-hmm. that is looming. And I think now it's finally registered as the acute pandemic and its variance is beginning to decline. People are talking a bit more about the post-COVID. Some estimates say that the economic consequences will actually be worse than the actual acute illness. So uh, it it is is a huge issue. And it could be seen early on, but it was just not on, they couldn't deal with it. They had to deal with the acute. Even Mm -hmm. some grant agencies in Europe that I'm familiar with we're telling people we can't support post-COVID syndrome. We know right. it's there. We can't do that because we're putting all our money to just trying to deal with vaccines, dealing with the acute. And uh, now the MRC is, is talking about post-COVID. You don't need the formal diagnosis because a lot of people have been turned away. Oh, you'll be fine. Just go home. Nobody hears that get a second a third a fourth until you get the opinion you want to hear, which is I'm going to refer you to this or that clinic or this or that test mm-hmm. assessment. That's part of the reason people are coming to us to be tested. They can say, don't tell me it's just, I'm anxious. I'm lonely, anxious, And lonely, don't explain my brain responses.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Connolly, for sharing. Um, I look forward to hearing more about the research coming out of your lab and coming out of Vox Neuro. Just thank you again for your time and for your expert knowledge on this talk. And we look forward to hopefully speaking with you soon.
2: Thank you very much.
1: So today we talked about the neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with COVID-19. There's still a lot of work to be done to characterize these, but so far it looks like COVID infection can be associated with a wide range of problems, both acute and
0: chronic. In the acute phase, we see evidence of delirium and psychosis.
1: And as the acute infection resolves, we see evidence suggesting increased symptoms of depression, anxiety, as well as longer-lasting cognitive impairment, currently referred to as brain fog.
0: The long-term consequences are yet to be studied. We have seen, with prior pandemics, that similar infections were associated with increased rates of neurological illness, including Parkinson's disease and other major neurocognitive disorders.
1: While a lot of attention has gone towards other aspects of COVID infection, we hope that the take-home message from this podcast will be to raise awareness about these important symptoms. For everyone, this is another reason to take steps necessary to prevent infection. For clinicians, this is something that we should be screening for in our patients.
0: Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will discuss some of the social implications of COVID-19 through a neuroscientific lens.